Welcome to the weekly sermon podcast of St. Luke's in Oklahoma City. We are one church with multiple campuses, and under the leadership of our senior pastor, Dr. Bob Long, we are a family of faith that seeks to share God's love and bring hope to the world. We invite you now to join us for a message of hope. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he journeyed, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed about him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to If you had three wishes and they had the power to change your life, what would you wish? This idea of a magic lamp, a genie, a boy and three wishes is a story that's been around a long time. It actually goes back to 1709, 300 years ago. Paul Lucas was a Frenchman who had been traveling and he came back home to Paris in 1709 and said that an old Syrian storyteller had told him this story of Aladdin, and he wrote it down. Well, for 300 years, this story of a genie, a lamp, the three wishes, it's been around and it's been told and it has had different variations on it and, and different twists to it, but it's always basically the same. It's been so very popular for 300 years. It was in 1988 that you wound up having um, uh, uh, Howard Ashman come to Jeffrey Katzenberg, who was in charge of animation at Disney, and he said to him, why don't we make an animated musical of Aladdin? And Jeffrey Katzenberg said, I'll think about it. We may need to wait. Now, Howard was an incredible artist. 
It turned out back when he was in junior high, he wound up uh, uh, playing in a play of Aladdin. And he was Aladdin. And he had loved the show and its message ever since he was in junior high. It's back then that he finally he learned that he really wanted to be in theater. So he graduated high school, went off to college, and when he graduated, he got involved there in New York and in the theater district. But it wasn't until he partnered with Howard, um, until he partnered with Alan Minken. And Alan Minken was just this incredible artist. And the two of them wound up being a perfect team. One to write the music, that was Alan. One to write the lyrics, and that was Howard. And they chose an old story and turned it into a musical, and that was A Little Shop of Horrors. It opened off-Broadway, and it is the biggest hit, off-Broadway hit of all times. I mean, it was just huge for years. And then they made it into a movie. That's probably where you have seen it, was the movie that it was made into. And it was good enough that it earned the two of them an Academy Award nomination. Well, after they had such great success doing this, it was then Alan who decided... I mean, Howard, who decided that he wanted to go off on kind of his own and create another musical, and he did. It was entitled Smile, and it was about a beauty pageant and what was going on behind the scenes, and he got it to Broadway. It opened on Broadway, and it was a terrible flop. I mean, it was criticized, panned. It had 48 performances, and they closed the doors. It was a huge financial loss, just a disaster. And it was so discouraging to Howard that he decided he wanted to partner again with Alan and he said, let's get out of New York and let's go to Hollywood. They had a friend who knew Jeffrey Katzenberg. And this friend said to Jeffrey, I know two guys that you would love to have work at Disney. You need to visit with them. And so Howard and Alan went out to Hollywood and they visited with Jeffrey. And Jeffrey said, you know, we do have a project we're working on right now. We believe that it's kind of struggling, and we believe it needs to be a musical. Um, and so if you want to come and work with us, we could give you free reign to work on that. And they decided to do it. It was called A Little Mermaid. And so the two of them set to work. They were writing all the music and the lyrics, developing the story, Alan and Howard became the driving force behind A Little Mermaid. As you know, it came out, huge success, and Alan and Howard would wind up winning two Oscars, the Academy Awards. It was a huge turning point in their lives and, and what had happened. And so it was after they got through with A Little Mermaid in 1988 that Howard went to Jeffrey and said, I want to do um, Aladdin. But Jeffrey said, you know, we got another project we're working on right now. And we think we need your help with this project. And so before we do Aladdin, we're going to have to do another one over here. And I, we need y'all to work on this. All right, what is it? Beauty and the Beast. So they went to work on Beauty and the Beast. And as they were working on Beauty and the Beast, Howard discovered he had AIDS. He wasn't 40 years old. Back in the 1980s, if you had AIDS, there really wasn't much you could do. 
Howard was getting weaker and he knew he was dying. But he had a decision to make, what to do with the time that he had left with his life. And so what he decided he wanted to do was to make beautiful music. Music that he hoped would draw people together, help people to love and understand each other even though they may be different, like a beauty and a beast. And so he kept working on the project and you can just feel the intensity and the depth of the music. Be our guest. Beauty and the Beast. It was a powerful show. But as soon as he got through with that, you know, it doesn't open yet. It takes a little while, post-production, and finally to go on to distribution. As soon as they got through with their part of doing Beauty and the Beast, he jumped in there with Alan, and they started working on Aladdin. Because that was his love. That's what he had wanted to do. And now he wanted to have an impact on Aladdin. And so they worked and worked. But finally, at this point, Howard had to be able to say, I have AIDS and I'm dying. And people were crushed. They loved him so much and he was so artistic. And in the end, long before the musical was finished, um, Howard passed away. And after he had passed away, then Beauty and the Beast would finally come out. And when it came out, if you watched all the way to the end, you found an interesting um, statement. Now, you know, when I say the end, you and I tend to think the movie's over when it says the end and it starts to roll the credits. That's when everybody gets up and walks out of the theater or you turn off your TV. No, you need to watch to the end of the credits to learn all the important things. And if you will watch to the end of Beauty and the Beast, it suddenly comes up the last statement in memory of our friend Howard Ashman. He gave a mermaid a voice and a beast a soul. We will always be grateful. And they could have added, and a young boy hope for the future. All of Howard's characters, all of the people he helped to create had certain things in common. They all were having to work at learning how to love themselves. How do you love other people? How do you stay committed to work hard and keep trying? How do you face the future with hope? These were the characters that he created and he was so good. But now having passed away, as the movie is just getting really going, they had to turn to someone else to come in and help finish things up with Alan. And so they turned to Tim Rice. Tim Rice, you and I talked about a couple weeks ago when we started this series, when we talked about Mamma Mia. You remember it was Tim Rice who was working on a musical called Chess, and he brought in Benny and Bjorn from ABBA, and that's when they met the director who would create Mamma Mia, was working with Tim Rice on the musical Chess. Well, Tim Rice had been working with Andrew Lloyd Webber and then went on his own to do Chess. And then after that, he worked with this other fellow, Elton John. And they worked on a Disney project together called The Lion King. That one went pretty well, too. So they wrote all the songs for The Lion King, and so now that they were through with that project, 
Now Disney turned to Tim Rice to say, would you come work you know, with Alan and us finish up um, uh, what we're doing now with Aladdin? And so we did. And they wrote the music of A Whole New World and on and on. Alan had won two Academy Awards, two Oscars at the Academy Awards for A Little Mermaid, won two more for Beauty and the Beast. He'd win two more um, for Aladdin. No, he really was on a roll with Disney, creating what's been called the Disney Renaissance. These two men who needed to come to work for Disney, that was the best decision they'd made in a long time. Well, they finally brought out 1992, um, Aladdin, hit the, the theaters. Huge success. In the end, it would make over $500 million. $500 million. And I love the tagline. It said, one lamp, three wishes, limitless possibilities. Limitless possibilities. And there were for Aladdin. But it took 18 years before finally Thomas Schumacher saw some of those limitless possibilities and he was in charge of taking Disney movies to the stage, the theater in Broadway and it took him 18 years to decide I'm going to take Aladdin from the movie and take it to Broadway. And when he made that announcement, everybody said, that's impossible. It had been 18 years. It took four more years. It was so difficult. But on March the 20th, 2014, they opened. And again, it was a huge success. Aladdin is still playing in, on Broadway in New York right now. If you want to go see it, it is still playing there. It is coming up on its 10th anniversary, 4,000 performances. I don't know how long it'll go, but it still has a good run going on in New York at the present time. But the fascinating thing is that now when Disney had come back and taken it from an animation movie to theater, it was in 2019 they decided to make live action show where you're having people. And they made Aladdin again in 2019. Will Smith wound up playing the genie. That movie has made $1 billion already. So, so you have an animation movie in, in uh, 19... Uh, 92, then you're going to have Broadway and then you have live action. What is it that makes Aladdin so popular? Why? I think it's because we really can relate actually to Aladdin, to Jasmine, and that we relate to people who have a life that they're really not completely happy with. And they want to change their lives. And we don't feel we have the power to do it. And we think, man, if I had three wishes and I had the power to change my life, that would be so good. We can relate to that. We understand. It turns out that it is a story, as you know, about a young man named Aladdin. Aladdin is a, what's called a street rat. That is, he lives on the streets. He's homeless. He's an orphan. He steals fruit and bread in order to survive. He has a sidekick, a monkey, and they have a little place where they hide out. 
And from where they live, they can see the palace. And they see this palace, and he just keeps saying, in there rich people live. And they have all the food they want to eat, and they have servants who take care of them. That's where I want to be. But you and I know that inside the palace, there's Jasmine. She's the princess. And she is rich, and she has all the food she wants to eat. And she has servants, and she's saying, I want out of here. I want to go be somewhere that I'm free. So you have these two people who are looking at their circumstances and they both want something different and their paths are going to cross. And what they will come to learn is it's not the circumstances, it's learning to change their perspective of the circumstances and get a whole vision of a whole new world. It is Aladdin who will take Jasmine on a magic carpet ride and I read you the words from the song you heard. I can show you the world shining, shimmering, splendid. Tell me princess, now when did you last let your heart decide? I can open your eyes, take you wonder by wonder, over, sideways and under on a magic carpet ride. A whole new world, a new fantastic point of view. To discover that you and I need a whole new point of view. To be able to look at our circumstances with a new perspective. That's actually what happened to Saul in our scripture lesson. We're reading the story of Saul who was a Roman citizen and a good Jew, a Pharisee. And you didn't have that a lot in the past. You didn't have Romans Romans and Pharisees in one person. That's what you had in, Paul, in Saul. And he was a Pharisee. A Pharisee is a lawyer of the, of the faith. You know all the laws and rules, more than 600, and you're trying so hard to follow them all. He was a righteous man. Faith was important to him. And so when you had other people come along who called themselves Christians, these people who were saying Jesus is the Christ... Jesus is the Messiah. They were saying you didn't have to keep kosher. These things were highly offensive to good Jewish people, lawyers in the faith. And so they wanted to persecute these people. And the people were known as the way. You see, the way was the way of Jesus Christ. And so it was called the way, followers of the way. And so Saul goes to these Roman authorities and said, I need some soldiers, I need arrest warrants, and I want to go get these people who are followers of the way and bring them to justice for what they are saying. And so he got that. And he heads off for Damascus. And he's on the way to Damascus when suddenly he gets knocked off his horse by a blinding light. Knocks him into the dirt. And when he gets up, he hears this voice saying, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, the one you persecute. Well, now the soldiers who were with him, they heard the voice, but they didn't see anything. And it says Saul was now blind. And they had to pick him up and put him on his horse and lead him into town. Now understand Luke is trying to tell you what happened, but is also creating imagery. He is blind. He can't see anything. That is, he can't see the truth. He can't see the circumstances. 
And so they take him into town. For three days he didn't eat nor drink, cannot see. And the Lord shows up to Ananias, who is a follower of the way. And the Lord says to Ananias, I want you to go to this guy named Saul and lay your hands on him and heal him of his blindness. And Ananias says, whoa, 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 whoa. You don't know this guy. This guy is trying to put people like me in jail. And the Lord says, no, I know exactly who he is. And I can see his heart. And so Ananias doesn't make sense to him, but he goes. And he lays hand on Paul and prays for him. And it says, and scales fell from his eyes. Again, Luke is trying to create this image for you to say, suddenly Saul, who becomes Paul, can see. He is able to see new circumstances. He is able to see a new perspective. He can see a whole new world, different from the one he was in. And now Paul no longer wants to persecute people of the way. He wants to go out into the world and share God's love and bring hope to the Gentile world. A whole new perspective, a whole new world. It's what we want. It's what we need. You don't need a genie and three witches. You actually have the power now to change your world. That's what I want us to think about and there's really just two things that I want us to see. It is the grace of Christ that gives you the strength to continue to not quit. You know when Paul takes off now to go to the Gentiles in the world. He goes to Philippi. He goes to Corinth. He goes to Thessalonica. He has great success. But don't miss the fact that when he's out there doing this, he's also getting run out of cities. He's being beaten. He is being stoned. Ultimately, he is put into prison. Life is hard for us all. And I never want to imply that it's anything other than that. Life can be challenging. It was for Paul. Success, yes, and yet it was hard. The issue is he did not quit. Paul would write to his son in the faith. He calls him Timothy, his son in the faith. A young man who's getting going, and he would write to him, and he would say, Timothy, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. He did not quit. I've kept the faith. I've run the race. I've fought the fight. Timothy, you can do this too. Don't quit. When they got ready to bring the show Aladdin to the stage, they knew it was going to be a challenge. They had been told it's impossible. They said it's impossible for two reasons. One, how do you bring the genie from the movie to stage. I mean, you've had Robin Williams voicing the genie, ship shaping, he can change, he can do all in animation. He carries this show. How do you bring the genie to the stage? Impossible. Secondly, one of the cool things about Aladdin is he's got a flying carpet. How do you make a flying carpet in theater? No, it's going to be impossible. 
it was Thomas Schumacher who was in charge of taking things there, who went out and hired um, Casey Nicolaw, and the two of them went to work trying to solve these problems. They hired a cast, people they felt would be great, hired technical people, they began working on these technical issues, and it took a lot longer than they thought. It had been over two years. They decided to go out now to Seattle and go try out the show. I mean, they knew they didn't have all the cool technology yet, but they had the lines, they had the characters, and so they went out to Seattle. Their flying carpet was a mattress lying there on the, the theater. But that's okay. You just have to use your imagination. Let's see how the lines work. Let's see how it flows. They went out and performed it, and it wasn't near as good as they thought it was. So they came back. They came back and said, okay, we've got to work on this. We've got, we got to improve this. This is, this is not good yet. So it took a while longer, and now they had the technology, the cool things. They now had a thing called the toaster. And the toaster was a circular tube, and the actor would climb into the tube, and then, I mean, you pop up. You fire out of this thing at 12 feet per second. So that when suddenly a person's supposed to appear on stage, boom, you're there. I mean, it was a cool thing. They called it the toaster because you pop up, they're on stage, whoosh, um, and you're there. And then they created a flying carpet. And we don't know to this day how they do it. Because it is still happening in New York, the show is still performing, and they have refused to share the technology or help people know how they make the flying carpet. So I don't know either. But they got a flying carpet. They actually did it. And they got the toaster. You're there. They took it to Toronto to open again. And when they opened in Toronto, something still wasn't right. And now they're getting close to opening night. And they are struggling. And so Thomas Schumacher calls a friend of his who's a director in New York and says, would you come watch this play? He shows up to see it. And after it's over, they meet out there in the lobby. And his friend says, okay. We've got a success. But the first 30 minutes of the show are terrible. You don't hook the people. You got to change some stuff. So they went back and they went to work. And now they're rewriting and suddenly they're telling these different actors, okay, those, those lines you got, forget those, here's 30 new lines. We're going to change what the songs are being sung. We're going to change something with this character. I mean, they are working 12 to 14 hours a day, seven days a week, revamping, rewriting, pulling it all together so that on March the 20th, 2014, the curtain goes up. And now it is a huge success. And I saw a, an interview with Thomas Schumacher, and I want to read you what he said. Do you know, before we opened, four years ago, we were all told this is impossible because of the genie, and the flying carpet. And now when you talk to somebody who comes out of the show, there's two things they talk about. The genie and the flying carpet. I've just got to tell you, I am so proud of all the people who have worked on this project because they never quit. You don't have to quit. Because of God's grace, you find the strength to continue to try. You don't quit. And that's how you discover a new perspective. It's how you discover a whole new world.
And so secondly, I believe from all of this that we see that God wants you to be you because you're the only you that the world has. How much time in our lives do we spend feeling like we are not good enough? We want to be somebody else. We want to be like somebody else. We fear we're not good enough. We're not worthy. That's why you want three wishes so you can change. You know, you look at Paul and Paul would have to look back on his life and he would always remember how he stood there holding the coats of those who stoned Stephen and killed him. Could never change that. First Christian martyr was Stephen, a young man, good man, and they stoned him because he was a follower of Jesus. Paul held their coats. He would never be able to change the fact that he had hunted people down, put them in chains, and put them in jail because they were followers of the way. He had done that. The fact that he wanted to go out now and share God's love to the Gentiles, when he first wanted to do that, the people in Jerusalem, they, they were not interested. I mean, they knew him. They were afraid of him, just like Ananias had been. It was Barnabas who had come to know the heart of Paul, and Barnabas was respected by the leaders in Jerusalem, and he was the one who said to them, visit with this guy. And so they finally visited with Paul, and they finally blessed Barnabas and Paul to go out and carry out their Gentile mission trip. And Paul and the leaders would still cross swords sometimes. But Paul had discovered, in spite of all the mistakes I've made and all the things that I did wrong, I am still loved by God. For he would write to the Romans and he would say, I've discovered there's nothing in life, nor death, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor anything in all creation that can separate us from the love of God. It's when you know that nothing can separate you from the love of God. That no matter what mistakes you have made, no matter what wrongs you have committed, that it's God who still chooses to love you, who is still proud to call you his child. And when you know that, it does give you the strength to continue on. It helps you to see the world in a whole new way. Thomas Schmeiermacher didn't know that he's going to have a real problem with the genie. So what they did with the genie is they, they went out and they hired James Monroe Eiglart. James Monroe Eiglart. It turns out he is African-American, big guy, booming voice, beautiful smile, incredibly talented. And he will tell you, he was 17 years old when his mother took him to the movies to see Aladdin. And he fell in love with Aladdin. So much so, he went out and he bought a cassette tape. Some of you will know what that is, a cassette tape. And of the music of Aladdin. And he played it so much the cassette tape broke and so he could buy another one and he'd buy another one. That's what cassette tapes would do. So he bought the music and he just played it all the time. He loved it. And he said, if you would have told me at 17 years old that I was going to play the part of the genie on Broadway, I would have said, that's impossible. And yet he got the part. 
And he was so excited until he got the part. And then he thought, this is going to be a disaster. I am not Robin Williams. Robin Williams is so incredible. He created this character. And it's, first of all, it's going to be an animation. And when I come out on stage and it's just me and there is no animation, people are not going to relate to this character. They're going to be so disappointed. I am not good enough for this. And he told his fellow actors, I'm not good enough for this. How do you do that? Well, it was the director, Casey Windlaw, who called him and said, okay, do you know how to tap dance? And James said, no, no, I, I don't. There was a long pause. He said, are you sure you don't know how to tap dance? <laughs> yeah, I'm sure I don't know how to tap dance. And then after a pause, he said, but I could learn. Great, after you learn, you call me back, click. James Monroe went out to learn how to tap dance. And when he had learned, he called back. And what he didn't realize was Casey was creating a whole new entrance for the genie. If you watch the movie, the entrance with the genie singing, you ain't never had a friend like me, just like you heard Elvie sing a moment ago. You ain't never had a friend like me. It goes two and a half minutes. For the opening of the show in Broadway, it now goes seven minutes. And there's all kinds of athleticism. I mean, there's jumping and tumbling and dancing and tap dancing and it is over the top. And he's singing his song for seven minutes. You ain't got a, never had a friend like me. And on opening night when he came out and he performed and he came to the end of it, everyone came to their feet in a standing ovation here at the beginning of the show. Now, that's not how it happens. I mean, you may get a standing ovation for the show at the end, no, this is right at the beginning when the genie comes out, standing ovation. They are out of their seats. He would win a Tony Award for the character of the genie. He was incredible. He owned it. People loved the new genie on Broadway because he was him. He wasn't Robin Williams. The world didn't need another Robin. The world needed another James. And when he came out to do what he could do, he was more than enough. How often you and I feel like we won't be good enough. That we won't be worthy of someone's love. It's, it's exactly what was the struggle for Aladdin. He didn't feel he was worthy of a prince's love. He wasn't good enough. Thank goodness he had a genie and a flying carpet who kept telling him, tell her the truth. One wish was to be a prince. Tell her the truth. You're enough. That was the message. Don't be something you're not. Be who you are. You are enough. Tell her the truth. The world needs you because you're the only you that the world has. As I told you, Howard Ashman, as soon as he got through with Beauty and the Beast, he started working on, uh, on Aladdin because he wanted to have an impact on the story that he loved so much. And we believe that the last song that Howard ever wrote was the song, Proud of Your Boy. It's a song that 
tells us how he had struggled. Am I good enough? Am I loved? Are you proud of me? It's the very thing that, that we find that the struggle was with Aladdin. It was a struggle for Howard. It's a struggle for you and me. It's human nature. Am I worthy of your love? Am I good enough? Proud of your boy, Aladdin sings it to his mother, who is dead, but he's still remembering his mom, and he sings the song. Proud of your boy, I'll make you proud of your boy. Believe me, bad as I've been, Ma, you're in for a pleasant surprise. I've wasted time, I've wasted me, so say I'm slow for my age, a late bloomer. Okay, I agree. Tell me I've been a louse and a loafer. You won't get a fight here. No, ma'am. Say I'm a gold brick, a goof off, no good. But that couldn't be all that I am. Water flows under the bridge. Let it pass. Let it go. There's no good reason for you should believe me. Not yet, I know. But someday and soon I'll make you proud of your boy. Though I can't make myself taller or smarter or handsome or wise, I'll do my best. What else can I do? since I wasn't born perfect like dad or you. Mom, I will try so hard to make you proud of your boy. That song didn't make the movie because the mother's character got cut. And so when it got cut, then the song didn't make sense and they took out the song. When it came to Broadway, they asked Alan Minken, will you come back and do the music again for the show on Broadway? And he did. And of course, he brought the songs that Alan had written. And he said, this needs to be in the show. And so what they did was they had his mother already died, but he's remembering his mom as Aladdin sings, Proud of Your Boy. And they said when it opened... There wasn't a dry eye in the house. That every man sitting in there had tears running down their cheek. Why? Because everyone wants to feel that their mother is proud of them. And maybe you didn't get that. Maybe you didn't get that feeling your mother was proud of you or that your father's proud of you or that your spouse is proud of you or your friends are proud of you. Just know God is proud to claim you as his child. That nothing can separate you from God's love. No matter what you've done, no matter who you are, Paul says nothing can separate us from God's love. To know you are enough that God is proud of you for being his child. When you know God's love, then it's going to give you a new perspective. It's going to help you find a whole new world. It's in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.
Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer. Amen. You've been listening to the sermon podcast of St. Luke's Methodist Church in Oklahoma City. We are one church with multiple campuses. Learn all about St. Luke's different services and programs on our website, stlukesokc.org. We trust you will experience God's love and hope throughout this week.